You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. We hear the word feminism a lot, but what does it really mean? And in our modern times, why do we still need it? In her book, Feminism, A Brief Introduction to the Ideas, Debates, and Politics of the Movement, Deborah Cameron considers feminism as an idea, a theoretical approach, and a political movement, addressing seven key issues in feminism, domination, rights, work, femininity, sex, culture, and the future. I spoke with her about the book, her perspective on today's feminist movement, and more over the phone. Here's that interview. So first, I wonder if you can tell me a bit about your background in feminism and what inspired you to write a book about feminism today in this modern era. <laughs> uh, well, I've been a feminist for a very long time. I'm 60 now, and I first became politically active when I was about 19. And so, you know, I've seen a, a lot of change over the years, and I've written many things that kind of had a feminist inspiration or angle. But the reason that I wrote this kind of little book of feminism is is actually because somebody asked me to. It wasn't a thing that I would have necessarily pitched on my own, but it was originally part of a series of little books about big ideas that a publisher kind of approached me and said, do you want to write this? And I thought I did think, oh, maybe they want someone, you know, younger, hipper, whatever. But in the end, I kind of thought, well, that's a that's a challenge. That's something that I should be up for. And I mean, you you write about this in your intro, and I, I I've always sort of wondered about this question. But why do you think that it is that so many women have historically not wanted to identify themselves as feminist? Well, I think there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, the the one that I talk about in the introduction to the book is that feeling that you don't want to be lumped in with a class of people. You want to be yourself. You want to be respected and treated as an individual. It's kind of the the great paradox of feminism that in order to kind of fight for the rights of women as individual people, they have to kind of organize themselves as a class, although comprising as they do 50% of the world's population, they often don't have a lot of common ground. You know, there are many differences, uh, political and, you know, experiential and so on, that makes that very difficult. So I think a lot of women really resist being kind of lumped in with all other women. And I also think that a lot of women resist, I remember resisting this myself when young, the idea that you are oppressed. You would like to believe that you are not. It's actually quite a depressing thought that you belong to a category of people who are kind of systematically disadvantaged, exploited and ill-treated. And I think a lot of women it's a kind of survival strategy or a, a strategy for preserving a sense of self not to accept that. But things happen to women that eventually kind of make them reckon with it. I mean, and do you think do you think it actually matters if people, well, women, let's say, identify themselves as feminist or not? You know, like I've sort of tended 
to of late take a show don't tell position so i i care less about labels than i do about um politics or action or behavior what do you think about that does does the label matter so much I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the, the motto of the Women's Social and Political Union, the suffragettes in Britain, was deeds, not words. Uh, they meant they would take direct action. But I think it, it is a good guide. Somebody, somebody who simply uses the label, and, and particularly now when it is a sort of brand, where it's, it's something that every woman is asked, oh, are you a feminist? And they kind of have to take a position on, is this a brand I want to identify myself with? I think um, that really isn't, you know, the, the greatest thing to judge by. I would be more interested in what does somebody do? What does somebody say? I mean, I think I, I say in the book, quote someone in the book, Sylvia Walby maybe, who says, now that feminism is is an identity, we don't we we say is someone a feminist and not does someone do feminism, but the doing of it is in the end more important. And of course, there's a number of different ways that people define that word, even making it even more difficult to say who is a feminist and who isn't a feminist because people sort of understand the term in 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 differing ways. You know, some people think that it's a belief that women are human, <laughs> um, support for equal rights for men and women. I've often defined it as a political movement to end patriarchy and male violence against women. Um, you mentioned uh, philosopher Nancy Hartsock's uh, definition, was that, which was that it was a mode of analysis. How do you define feminism? Well, I think it is many things simultaneously. And I also think it's true if you look at its history at all that women have always had different definitions of it, different ideas about what it meant to be feminist and what feminists ought to be doing. Um, I would define it as a movement for the liberation of women or for the freedom of women. You know, I, I prefer myself not to use words like equality, though it would be nice, um, or choice, empowerment, those kinds of words. And my idea is that it, it is about freedom. And the the slogan, you know, the feminism is the radical notion that women are uh, people is, in my view, quite a good slogan, because many of the ways in which women are oppressed uh, as a as a category do come, I think, from not regarding them as as sort of fully human in the same terms as men. So I would agree that it's it's a movement to end patriarchy. But of course, then you get into what is patriarchy. And that is also uh, a matter on which opinions differ. So I think we've always argued and we probably always will. And actually, and that's a good question that I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, what is patriarchy? Where did patriarchy come from? Why? Why is it a, a bad thing? <laughs> Why do feminists see it as a bad thing, I should say? Many people don't see it as a bad thing. (laughs) Well, classically, it's the rule of the fathers. And, you know, you can reserve it for a very particular sort of social system in which older men have power over both women and younger men. Um, I am, am actually persuaded that in modern times, what you've really got is is what the political theorist Carol Pateman calls fraternal patriarchy or fratriarchy, 
were actually horizontal bonds between men um, who men men kind of exchange um, kind of fealty or or being dominated by other men for having power over women. They make um, connections with each other in order to dominate women. So I don't I don't think patriarchy is some if by that we just mean a system in which men dominate women. I don't think it's static and unchanging that it's been the same thing in all times and all places. Uh, feminists do use it often as a shorthand for um, for male domination. And I certainly believe that in the vast majority of societies, we have historical records for that has in some form or other been the situation. But of course, the forms in which it comes are variable. And as for where it came from, in, in a way, we'll kind of never know because it is difficult to uh, reconstruct the origins of something that everybody believes originated sort of in, in prehistory. Um, you know, some would say it came with the development of pastoralism, farming. But in a way, that doesn't particularly matter now. What, what matters, I think, is to believe it has a history, because if something has a history, it potentially has an end. It's not just determined by the kind of natural features of human beings in their societies. Something was there before, something could be there after. So I think that a lot of men think that feminism is actually about female domination. So they think that, you know, okay, so you want to get rid of patriarchy, you must naturally want to replace it with the opposite, that they would call it matriarchy. But of course, I think they understand the word matriarchy to mean men are subordinate and women are dominating men in violent ways, which is not how I understand the term matriarchy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I guess like, yeah, I think that it seems like a lot of men can only understand it in terms of a reversal and certainly about taking power away from men. So, I mean, do you think that's a legitimate fear? Do you think that men fear or um, are opposed to feminism because they're they're concerned that um, they'll end up being in a subordinate position or that they'll lose all power. Um, uh, yeah. Well, feminism does in the final analysis involve taking power away from men. <laughs> that is kind of the point of it, that men's power over women is an injustice which feminists are committed to getting rid of as far as possible. I don't think men need fear that women will dominate them in the way that they've dominated women because we have we have no record at all of any society in which that's been true. Um, the, the, the non-patriarchal societies we know anything about are egalitarian rather than um, female supremacist, as it were. And I, I suppose I think it is unlikely that that women either could or would want to um, to subordinate men in the way that they've been subordinated. But, you know, if it and that is that's not what any brand of feminism I'm aware of has really been about. So I think that that is a a sort of irrational fear on the part of men. But it's perhaps not surprising that they do entertain irrational fears. I mean, anyone who has power and who is used to having power or privilege of any kind will usually sort of fight to keep it or at least feel uncomfortable and unsettled by the prospect that they could lose it. I mean, even very small advances meet with 
a big backlash. It seems to me, you know, this, this idea that um, that men are being edged out of desirable jobs because now they have to compete with women. Well, you know, maybe some of them are. That's actually a logical conclusion. But the the amount of um, the amount of whining it causes relative to what we know about, you know, the representation of men and women in desirable jobs or positions of political power and so on, seems really disproportionate. So I think it is more about irrational fears and fantasies than about anything that that men can actually observe going on with feminism. Mm. And you know, speaking of domination, subordination, um, feminists—I mean, feminists use those terms a lot—and you talk about this in your book. You know that women occupy a subordinate position in society, but I think that for people living in the West, at least. They don't really understand that. So a lot of people will say to me, you know, like, it doesn't seem like it seems like women are doing much better than ever before, um, at least in the West. You know, there's no overt oppression. What are you talking about? What is this subordination? What does that look like? What does it mean? How do you respond to that? Well, I think there is overt oppression. Um, and I think the, you know, the starkest place in in which you find it would be statistics like, here in the United Kingdom, between two and three women a week are killed by men, usually their current or former partners. Um, I don't know how much, um, you know, how much more overt oppression really gets than that. And the the amount of of domestic violence and sexual violence that gets perpetrated pretty much with impunity, um, that is you know, really calls our attention to it, because it's true that many of the formal barriers to women's public participation, their citizenship, their supposed equality under the law, formally those things in in most places throughout the world, actually, not just what we traditionally call the West. There are outliers, but um, but in most places in the world, those things are in place. That does not mean that women have ceased to be oppressed in some very very traditional ways and the most extreme of which is being liable to be injured or killed by somebody who you know believes they have the right to control you and whose actions as often as not will be condoned by the law and this question I think this question does seem really obvious but I don't think it's actually as simple as it sounds but you know, what are women's rights? Like, what are some examples of women's rights? I think that, I, I guess I think that there's a lot of things that feminism has talked about for so long that the general population has sort of lost touch with why they exist and what they are and why they're important, if that makes sense. But, you know, what, why do women need specific sex-based rights anyway? Um, do women have specific sex-based rights? They have some specific sex-based protections, protections against practices that traditionally strip them of their rights. But I think, um, you know, most of the rights that women have won since the late 19th century are are in the category of equal rights. They have they have obtained rights that men or at least some men already had the right to own property, to be educated um, to compete for employment on the same terms as men, um, th- those kinds of things. The only specific rights that I can think of are reproductive rights. Um, 
And those, of course, are, are still very much in question in many parts of the world. And in terms of reproductive rights, you're talking about access to abortion, I assume. Access to abortion. Uh, I'm talking about um, bodily autonomy in general when it comes to the process of reproduction. So in addition to having the right to um, terminate a pregnancy, um, there's, also, there's also the right um, not to be coerced um, in ways that mean that you cannot have children if you wish to do so. Um, and, you know, obviously there, there are economic forms of coercion, but what I'm talking about is things like forced sterilization, which, of course, was an, a major problem, particularly for poor women and women of color in North America, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, for example, you know, well, right up, right up into the into the second wave of feminism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, one of the things that has changed, um, as far as I can tell, between the feminism of the second wave and today's modern feminism, but also, again, just in terms of how the, the general population understands this, but the term sex and gender... In the 60s, feminists saw these things as separate, so they had a particular analysis of gender, and it seems like today we've sort of mixed up the terms sex and gender, and we use them interchangeably. I wonder if you can talk about those feminists in the second wave, how they defined gender, you know, what gender meant in feminism. Well, you know, it's really interesting that some of the most prominent non-academic, non-professional academic feminists of the second wave didn't use the term gender. Shalameth Firestone didn't use it. Angela Davis in, in Women, Race and Class didn't use it. They got by without it. And of course, Simone de Beauvoir didn't use it because the word did not until recently really exist in, in French usage at all. So it's the second sex, not the second gender. Um, so academics did begin in the 1970s, really, rather than the 60s. So, you know, those those very early second wave texts, you really won't find much mention of gender, you know, the term gender uh, in those books, though they clearly knew what it was. Mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So they did make a distinction. Like between, they talked about uh, femininity and masculinity back then. Yes, yeah. they and they talked about, you know, sort of overthrowing the idea that that biology was destiny which they considered on the whole to be nonsense that in other words they the subordinate position of women and their characteristics that women were supposed to have because of it were seen as socially imposed rather than you know emanations of nature but the the actual term was really an academic term until quite recently and it only it, it only had this sort of flowering as an academic term which meant essentially socially constructed roles um for a few decades in academic discourse before it really started to get displaced in the way that you're the ways that you're talking about so you know another person who didn't use the term uh, gender was margaret mead the anthropologist margaret mead in the 30s and 40s but but people reviewing her work in the 40s did sometimes use it as a kind of hugely technical term. You know, she don't, she treats of gender as well as sex kind of thing. So it did come into use in social science and just after the Second World War. But um, it, it really wasn't um, that important to activist feminists until kind of well into the 70s or the early 80s. 
And although they always did make a distinction between what was supposedly natural and what was uh, cultural, um, imposed rather than kind of inevitable. Right. And I wonder, do you think do you think that divide between what's natural and what's cultural is um, completely black and white? I mean, do you think there's any basis to the idea that at least some aspects of femininity and masculinity, of course not all, um, are natural in quotations? Natural is a bit of a weird word anyway. Um, like, But, you know, like connected to evolution and biology. Well, I think some of them uh, are connected to embodiment. Um, but Simone de Beauvoir said that the body is a situation. You know, in, in other words, it is, um, you know, it is a, a thing that, that you sort of deal with, negotiate uh, in a social context. There are no asocial bodies. Nevertheless, I think that experience is embodied and that it matters in, in some ways. Uh, which kind of body you grew up inhabiting. Yeah, well, and I mean, of course, like, the culture we grow up in, the society we grow up in has an impact on our brains, you know, like our brains are are shaped by our experiences. So, of course, Mm -hmm. I guess it makes sense that, you know, if you were socialized into femininity and socialized into femininity over, um, or that women as a whole have been socialized into femininity over decades and centuries that some of that stuff would sort of be physical <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it but you know actually be a natural part of your brain or, or body or whatever yeah our body our body is where we live our brain is part of our body exactly um, <laughs> and you know as you, as you know and as you wrote about in the book one of the biggest divides in feminism is around sex so today popular feminism takes a you know what what people often call a sex positive approach i don't really like that term because i think it's totally misleading um and <laughs> but uh, other people are sex negative exactly and 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 that that this sex positive approach is actually you know the good for sex approach um i disagree with that but you know so so they'd argue that if a woman is making a free choice with regard to anything that could possibly be considered as sex so BDSM, stripping, porn, prostitution, pole dancing, whatever, even violence. Well, I guess that that's, of course, part of BDSM, but that's all fine so long as the woman consents and chooses chooses it. And, you know, of course, radical feminism takes a different approach, and, and second wave feminism largely took a different approach that was more critical of, you know, heterosexual sex even, but of course the sexualization of violence and and pornography and BDSM and things like that. Where did that divide arise? Well, uh, I mean, one one way in which it's glossed and, and was glossed in the 1980s particularly was the, you know, pleasure and danger, that the right of women to be sexual had been hugely suppressed uh, particularly in the in the years kind of leading up to the the beginning of the second wave that that the early feminists who called themselves radical feminists were very um insistent that women you know should have us have an autonomous sexual life so they were 
they were a kind of combination of, of today's positivity, if you like, with the kind of radical feminist, the current radical feminist critique, in that they were they were saying heterosexual sex, you know, sucks. Uh, men harassing women sucks, which was something that many of them had had experience of uh, in other radical social movements before they broke off to form autonomous feminist groups. So in in you know the the new left um, student uh, protests against Vietnam, uh, the civil rights even women were basically supposed to put out for men because that was kind of as much what they were there for as making uh, the equivalent of photocopies or making coffee. And, you know, they wrote eloquently about how how demeaning uh, that was and how um, traumatising at times it was. But they also didn't want to, you know, be what their parents had wanted them to be, so nice, chaste, young women who would kind of get married and have 2.5 children with someone who went out to work and blah, blah, blah. So they were very much for female sexual self-determination. But I think what happened what happened later on was a, you know, a series of disagreements about what, you know, what constituted in a way free choice. What... <laughs> You know, in, I don't think, and I, I guess I do say this in the book, that it's at all easy to talk about people choosing this, that or the other when basically they don't get to control what the menu is. I mean, our desires as well as all, all sorts of other things about us are formed, you know, through experience, through interaction with the world and interaction with other people. And this idea that what we say we want at some point is some authentic expression of individual, you know, assertion of, of individuality that has absolutely nothing to do with the world around us and is therefore not open to any kind of, of criticism or self-reflection. That's always struck me as a, as a strange idea. Uh, what I try to do in the book, because the book is written the tog reader, if you like, is, is one who doesn't know that much about feminism, is kind of explain what the debates are and what the arguments on, on both sides are. I mean, I have my own views, um, and, and one of my most strongly held views is that it really won't, won't wash to just talk about, you know, anything women choose <laughs> kind of empowers them. Um, I mean, who hasn't made bad choices, choices that they regretted later? And who has totally free choice about anything at all? You know, we live in a world that constrains what there is for us to choose, what there is for us to desire even. So I think um, feminism in, in relation to sex should involve kind of a, a critical questioning of, of everything. And for me, it certainly involves opposition to some things, and particularly the sex industry. I think it is quite impossible <laughs> to see the sex industry as a as a friend of feminism. Mm -hmm. And finally, you know, the fact that within feminism itself, a movement that is not widely supported throughout the world, <laughs> although I think sometimes it may see that, seem that way for us who are involved in feminism, of course there's thousands and thousands of, of women in this movement, but there's also a lot of backlash and a lot of opposition. 
And beyond that, there's also like so much disagreement just within feminism. So, you uh-huh. know, and that's not new. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, so women hold quite different beliefs about what should be focused on and how things should be done, which does make it challenging to actually get things done sometimes. Um, why do you think it is that within one movement people can have such different goals and and do you think it's possible to have a cohesive successful broad movement when we can't agree on where we want to go and how we want to get there well now yeah that's um that's a complicated question but in i suppose i'm optimistic i mean one thing you might say is that it isn't one movement it might have one umbrella name but actually it's it's a kind of, you know, coalition of of things that are diverse, possibly disparate, in, and in some cases kind of opposed. Um, but as I say, that isn't actually new. So there were there were women who opposed suffrage, both on conservative grounds and on sort of radical grounds, like Emma Goldman saying, you know, what do we want with the vote? It's just giving women the chance to participate in a completely um, appalling, exploitative, unequal system. She wouldn't support demands for, for suffrage. But women got suffrage pretty much around the world where, you know, where people have suffrage. Um and it, it seems to me that we have had a, a successful social movement that uh, over time, even though feminists were among themselves sort of passionately disagreeing about everything from their goals uh, to their tactics, you know, the suffragists and the suffragettes in England were, you know, very opposed to each other. Um, nevertheless, what they what did happen was, you know, consensus built up in not only within in feminism, but in the mainstream, that certain things were desirable and, and, you know, would have to be allowed to happen. Uh, They include the vote and the right of women to own property, equality before the law. I mean, if, if you think about all the things that women did not have, even 100 years ago, um, I think it's difficult to argue that feminism isn't a successful social movement, um, hasn't got any, hasn't achieved anything or whatever. I mean, it, it is easy to feel that way because there is continual pressure to roll it back, roll it back. And at the moment, with kind of populism, nationalism, um, misogyny, sort of organised misogyny in the ascendant, it's very easy to feel that we are we are going backwards, we are losing things and that thing, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance and why do we have to keep fighting the same battles over and over again? But, you know, if you take the long view, um I think it it is a successful social movement, kind of despite and maybe even in a way because of the arguments that go on inside feminism. I mean, one thing that does bother me about today is the unwillingness of people to make coalitions on issues where they do agree. Mm -hmm. And there is this tendency to kind of boycott anything if you disagree with, like, one thing that the other person thinks or whatever. And, um, And this kind of purity politics is, I think, quite counterproductive, especially when we're in situations of 
of kind of emergency where where you know rights that were fought for are under threat again i think people do have to learn to do the politics of coalition and to you know listen and to compromise and so on and i think that we are in a strange mood at the moment where that appears not to be possible but you know when you're in it it kind of looks it kind of always looks terrible and chaotic and totally polarized and when you look back um you see that actually sort of progress was was being made i the the kind of window was being shifted if you like and people who were not particularly politically committed um were eventually being brought on board with things which were kind of important gains at the time. So I, I am optimistic. I think you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I think uh, I say that at the end of at the end of the book. In fact, that even in places where women still have no rights at all, people know about feminism. You know, the fact that they're threatened by it is actually a better sign than if they'd never heard of it. Um, and I, I think that we live in a global world. You can't sort of stop ideas from being transmitted. You can't stop women from kind of fighting to the extent that they're able to fight and being inspired by other examples. And so, you know, it does go on, even if there's backward as well as forward movement. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that um, positive conclusion to our interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sound a bit skeptical. <laughs> no, I think you're right, um, and I appreciate it because sometimes it, I mean it's easy to to be cynical about things these days. Um, well, it's especially easy to feel feminism. very very worn down, particularly if you put any great energy in, into these these things at all. You know, I'm not a full time activist, or or actually these days even much of a part time activist. Were, I think I'd feel tremendously discouraged. On the other hand, I have friends who still are and who manage to stay optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's true. I think it's when you're on the inside, it's hard to have a clear picture of what's going on um, in general, if that makes sense. You know, like it's hard to it's hard yeah, to see I mean, how I, you're I, impacting the general I, population I, when you're caught up in these little tiny battles within the movement let's say they, they don't feel tiny and in and you know maybe they're not it's kind of too soon to say but um i suppose i think one of our problems at the moment is the the great resistance of of young women to knowing anything about what was done in the past with, and without sort of saying yeah but they were totally wrong and they were utterly reactionary and mm-hmm. we don't understand how they could i was thinking about this because you know in all other radical traditions people who wouldn't any longer agree with the tactics of you know early socialists or martin luther king or whatever nevertheless revere those figures and learn about what they what they did and so on they they don't say um, no, we repudiate all that. I want to start again and reinvent the wheel from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder. I said this to somebody the other day, and they were a bit skeptical. But is it is it because of women's difficult relationship with their mothers? Possibly, but I mean, we also have difficult relationships with our fathers, and then we still continue to 
you know, read, <laughs> read about it, and as you say, like, revere these, these political radical figures, so long as they're men, and so long as they were, you know, Marxists, or socialists, or fighting racism, or whatever, it seems to be something very particular to, to feminism, where we don't, yeah. we don't respect women, our elders, and we don't respect what women like did. We, you know, when, when we're young, the last thing we want to be like is the women of the generation above. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I'm, I mean, obviously I deal a lot with students, people um, like aged about 18 to 30, if you go right through to the kind of advanced graduates, and, and you know, in, in the end, I so I decided to teach about the second wave because it just wasn't getting done in feminist theory class or whatever, mm-hmm. and to many of them it's really been a revelation, being, you know, obviously they had to opt for it, but uh um, they were glad to have read all that stuff and and less horrified by it than they expected to be. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think a, a huge part of the problem is that, you know, the history of the feminist movement and the history of women doesn't really seem to be taught in university, even in gender studies. So, like you say, you know, young women aren't learning about what really happened during the second wave. They definitely aren't learning about what really happened in the first wave. So they get these kind of... These blips. No, it goes. That... It goes. Wollstonecraft, Beauvoir, Butler, and then everything happened after <laughs> Butler. So they miss out on just a few things there. That's one of the things I was hoping my little book of feminism would fill in a few of those blanks, even though it isn't a history as such. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. It's it's definitely a really useful book, I think, and I think that it's something that we need. Um, now, because I think there's a lot of books about feminism in the past, and then there's a lot of books about feminism now that I guess cover specific topics um, mm-hmm. or cover third wave feminism, mm-hmm. but but they don't get into to the history too much, or at least not in a way that that is accurate. That's for sure. <laughs> well, they're trying to do a different thing. Also, what we what we seem to have now a lot is memoir. Which you know, it's from one. It, it is by definition from one point of view, and can be very revisionist because, of course, you want to recuperate, you know, your past to where you are in the present. So, um, well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really glad that we got the chance to talk finally. Okay. Yes, me too. And uh, <laughs> um, good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Take care. You just heard an interview with Deborah Cameron, the author of Feminism, A Brief Introduction to the Ideas, Debates, and Politics of the Movement. The book is now published in the U.S. by the University of Chicago Press. You can find more of Deborah's work online at debuk.wordpress.com. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C., if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.